Hey everyone, this is Jamie Pride and welcome to episode 17 of the Failure Proof Podcast. My name is Jamie Pride, and thank you for joining us on the podcast where we explore performance, resilience, and the mindset needed to thrive in the modern workplace. If you are enjoying the podcast, please spread the word, and if you could rate us on iTunes, that would also be awesome. On today's show, I am joined by Karen Lawson. Karen is an award-winning business executive and leader in the digital and startup industry. Previously, as the CEO of Slingshot, she grew the business into the number one corporate accelerator in Australia, having accelerated more startups and run more corporate programs than any other provider, driving the total market capitalization of its alumni to over $507 million and having accelerated over 128 businesses. The $15 million Slingshot Venture Fund has invested into early-stage founders, driving innovation, economic growth, and employment. Prior to her role at Slingshot, Karen served as CEO of Career One, a joint venture between News Limited and Monster Worldwide, and she also served as general manager at Yahoo 7. Karen is also a huge foodie and has been a food and luxury travel journalist for over 13 years. This is an awesome interview. In it, Karen speaks about her journey to becoming a CEO. We also talk a lot about the challenges of people management, the role of the leader, and her self-care regime. Regardless of what you do and who you work for, I'm certain you will take something away from this interview. And I am joined by Karen Lawson. Thank you. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This has been um, long overdue. It has, hasn't it? <laughs> a few missed emails. I disappeared. You thought I didn't like you. You're what? a very hard no. woman to track down. <laughs> um, so look, for, for our listeners, I guess how I'd like to kick off is sort of tell us about your entrepreneurial journey. So mm. I'm assuming at one point in time you left school and came out to the big wide world. Yeah. Um, what was your first job? My first job was probably at the age of six, which is illegal. <laughs> <laughs> You're working in Nike sweatshop. Oh, my God. Uh, probably worse, actually. My dad's a hairdresser. No. Yeah, he is. And clearly not gay because <laughs> he had me or it was a really good cover. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, my first job was literally, this is going to make me sound really old, um, was handing up rollers to my dad. And I love the mental agility is that I was always trying to work out what colour roller as you go down the, the woman's hair. Now, as I don't know anything about rollers. Rollers and pins. and There are different colours. There are different colours for different sizes. Okay. Yeah. So it was like mental agility of could I, could I pick and almost mind read my dad to know <laughs> was I going orange, was I going green, was I going blue? Because if my dad went no, I was like, damn it. Damn it! Didn't anticipate. Didn't didn't anticipate. And the I'm means. assuming, judging by your accent, this was not in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was in uh, a very small town in Kent called Strood. Um, no one will ever have heard of it, but you might have heard of Rochester, which is a historical town, which is where Dickens grew up. So, yes, my dad was a hairdresser, and I spent my well most of my youth cleaning up hair. Rollers, <laughs> cotton wool, cleaning mirrors, um, and then I progressed to shampooing, which was really quite a status change for me. Wow, so, yeah, yeah definitely. Did you get and paid? Agreed. Um, I did a bit. Yeah, the the ladies were lovely. Um, so um, my dad uh, really had regulars, and that actually taught me a huge amount about customer service and about people, okay. about loyalty, mm. what really counts when you run a business. So. 
Um, I have to say at a young age, my entrepreneurial journey was, hey, this is really bloody hard work and I better find a new way of making yeah. money. <laughs> so I didn't follow in his footsteps, but it also taught me so much about people and their journeys and their lives. So they often talk about hairdressers being um, the poor man's psychologist. Totally. They tell you everything. Customers. Husband, yeah. You know, affairs, Juicy love affairs. Gossip. Oh my goodness! And Juicy then gossip in the hair salon. Yeah, and you get to see people, and because it's men and women, yeah, and you get to see these generations of, um, you know, maybe cutting somebody's hair when they were a young child, and then then they, you know, become an adult, and then their boyfriend comes in, and then they have children. So it's actually an incredible way of life when you have these customers because you get to know their whole story and their families, and it's um. I think hearing people's stories is such a privilege. And yeah. so it, it instilled in me from a very early age understanding uh, unit metrics, i.e. money and time, mm. um, and it instilled in me a great love of service and people um, and it also taught me that I needed to get the hell out of Strood in Kent. There you go. There you are. And it's it's funny because I think there are very few industries now where you have a long relationship with a customer. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, um, I think I so. I think even hairdressing now, like, I mean, I think people are promiscuous. They move around and Yeah, it depends how of, good the wine is, I think. <laughs> if you want, my hairdresser's listening, I'm not getting any wine, so what's going Mine on? Mine has an organic cheese platter. You have a choice of wine. On Saturdays it even used to have espresso martinis. What the hell's going and on? And my hairdresser <laughs> had two baby greyhounds and I was like, I'm not even sure I'm coming here to get my hair cut. <laughs> <laughs> it's an experience, right? So people are building, people are building experience. Look at that, yeah. That's crazy. So you didn't go into the family business, clearly, uh -uh. given no where way. you are today. Uh -uh. So you These you... hands are cruel-free. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so what happened? So you left school, decided mm. not to become a hairdresser. I did. So I went to um, a pretty bad school in a pretty bad area. Uh, most people were either pregnant by their age 16 or in jail because that was free food and accommodation. Fantastic. Um, so I really knew that I didn't want to go down either of those um, roads. Um, and having worked with my dad as well, I kind of knew that I had to be smarter and better to get out of this environment. And so I... I've studied really hard at school, so I was like the the weird nerd when everyone else is doing drugs and drinking and, you know, shagging around. Can I say shagging? Yeah, you can. Is that all right? You can, say, okay? you can swear on this podcast. You can say fuck <laughs> even, trust me. Jamie, you're awesome. <laughs> um, shagging around. I don't say that word very often. I might just say it one more it's time. so very British. <laughs> I could add snogging and we'd or be slapper. totally there. I mean, either of these. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So um, I thought, well, how do I get out of this? So I put myself through um, college, I couldn't afford to go to university. I worked, um, I did um, work experience at Thomas Cook um, at school and because I'm, you know, just, I'm just like action bunny. I'm just like running around getting everything done and they, uh, they hired me. As their Saturday girl, and I got to wear a great uniform and a lovely red bow tie that I was so proud of. <laughs> did you have a hat? Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't have a hat, but that was the only thing Thomas Cook didn't have at that point. Um, and then I went from Saturday girl to being their um, highest um, kind of grossing salesperson, um, and I was just still the Saturday girl. So I was selling holidays and flights. But oh, I mini just, breaks. Mini, mini breaks. Mini breaks. Oh, my God, I this love the also, Paris mini breaks. They were amazing. Also a thing that is uniquely British, which is the mini break. When I lived in the UK, we're going to oh go to Paris God. for a mini I'm break. I'm having flashbacks. Did you say you sold amazing. plenty of mini breaks? Oh, my God, I did, yeah. What was the uh, number one destination for the mini break? Oh, mini break was always Paris. Paris. Always, always yeah. On the Eurostar? 
Oh, um, wasn't it was. I was gonna say, thank you. Oh, Actually, no, it wasn't. Yeah, Actually, you had a choice. Do you want to go ferry, or wow. you could, you know, potentially you could fly. You could fly. So we For didn't have that. Bubble. Yeah, and then um, I moved into travel by appointment, which were the really we we had this beautiful lounge built out back for those for the for posh the, people. For the posh people doing their honeymoons and safaris and their glamping tents that was just starting to happen. Um, so uh, that that money actually put my, I put myself through college. Um, okay. Still couldn't afford to go to university, but I got really, really good grades. And then it was just like, okay, so where can I go um, in corporate life that will enable me to get a degree qualification while I'm working? Okay. So I just sussed it out. Um, and literally I just applied for like Harrods and all these different like training programs and literally I ended up with Ernst & Young um, and I beat 4,000 people to 10 places um, to be like a trainee accountant wow. um, or an auditor, which is the worst of the worst of the worst because an external auditor is like the most hated person ever. Oh, I know ever. some auditors. <laughs> and they're lovely. <laughs> <laughs> they're up there with actuaries. Oh, but my anyway. God. So I did that for a couple of years um, and I commuted five hours a day. Uh, did really long hours at work and studied on the coach to and from London. Uh, and it was really brutal. Um, and anyone that knows me just said, you, an accountant, mm, I, don't know, I don't know how that works. Um, just because I'm such a people person and yep. it just, um, I love the conversations when I was let out of my auditing box and my green pens and my bank reconciliations. But um, ultimately it wasn't for me. And at the same time, um, what was happening in Britain was just incredible. So British Telecom, the whole industry was being deregulated. There was this new upstart called Mercury Communications that was owned by Cable and Wireless. And I don't really remember they were kind of like the one two one before your phone, like on when yeah. you were making a phone call and you could bypass the British Telecom system. I remember that. So and you got forty percent cheaper off, you know. So it really Long wasn't that there was no solution selling. It was just like we're cheaper. Yeah. So I jumped ship and started when there were only a few people um, in the UK and um, did telephone account management sales because I knew how to sell. I knew how to be with people. Yep. Um, and that was, yeah, that was kind of my, that was a little bit of entrepreneurship and then a little bit of how I got into corporate So you're life. one of those people on the phone trying to sell plans. Yeah, but it was more to um, customers that were already customers of Cable and Wireless, so corporate customers and upselling them, so telephone account management. So I didn't have yep. the flashy car or anything. I just had the phone. You didn't have like an and expensive my account. That was it. <laughs> that was and how it. long were you there for? So I did that for two and a half years. Yeah. Um, took it to 200 people, led that call center. Mm. Um, and then I moved into global account management where I looked after really big accounts like FedEx and hotels. And um, that was just, that was a joy because, you know, the whole environment around the competition and the battles between the telephone world and the new data world were happening. And you could see these power bases inside the corporate really struggling because really the telephone guys were the IT guys. Mm. And then all of a sudden we started to have, well, could you make a phone call over the internet? <gasps> no way. No one would ever It'll do that. It'll never catch on. It'll never catch on. Yeah. And so you could see these internal battles but really was trying to help these leaders set up global communication systems that will enable their businesses to be successful. So you got really quite deeply involved in the customer and what they were trying to do and their mission and their purpose and really the technology was just a layer to that so and I had some amazing clients and that was a joy so did that for a couple of years so cable and wireless all in all I think was close to 10 years and then I finished um being put 
on into a kind of a, a squad team that was handpicked by the um, CEO uh, that basically said your remit is to go forth and conquer and come up with any idea and any partnership or anything. And they pulled product people, salespeople, engineers and just went, you guys, you're a squad, go out there, just just bring us like $50 million of revenue in the next year. So kind of did that and then I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. There you go. And so you were managing people at a pretty young age, mm. it sounds like. And I was. How was that experience for you? Was that <laughs> was that natural or did you sort of find your feet? I mean, mm. do you like managing people? I do now. Yeah. Back then, um, I think I had quite a few scars actually. Um, and also, if, if anyone's managed salespeople. Mm. Mm, They're a unique beast. They are. You know, it's kind of like you're – your hero salesperson is often your Achilles heel. Like they, you love them and you want to kill them at the same time. Yeah. Um, so they're quite wily characters. Um, but I, I would actually say, like, I, because I enjoy being with people so much and I really do help, like, I really do enjoy developing people. Um, and you, you know, you've run teams, you've run businesses. I think leaders, and that's certainly the way I felt was that you put so much into people and you give and you give because you really want to help them develop. And for most of the time you see those rewards, but there are just some of those times where you go, you know what, I've just put in like 150% and you're giving me back 20%. Yeah. And then there are the odd experiences where that 20% flips and they come back to kill you. Yeah. Um, and I, I had at a young age um, a really, um, really awful experience actually. It was a sales, it was a sales individual that was, was not performing. Mm. So it's really clear when you know people are not performing. Especially in sales. Absolutely. Um, and um, he, so we'd got, I've gone through the process with my superiors and it's like, we're really, you know, we've done everything we can, we really need to put him on performance management. And we did that and then he filed a racial discrimination case against me. Wow. And everyone fled, like above me, around me, everyone scarpered. And I was just like holding sitting the... there like a scapegoat. Yeah, it was horrific. And as a young, like as a young leader, I was, I was um, yeah, on so many levels, it really, it was really, really challenging. And how did you work through that? Like, was that the first sort of bad people experience you mm, had? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it involves your peer group. Mm. Um, it involves your team, which you think are really loyal. It also involves um, senior managers as well all of which were aware of what we were doing and all of which were supportive. But when that happened, literally everyone like put their head in the sand and it was like, bang. And that's actually when I decided to go from leading and managing large teams to say, you know what, I've given to you, I've supported you, I've developed you. And really when I did the right thing by the individual, which was to really put them on a, a development plan, a performance development plan to either improve their performance or actually understand it wasn't the right right um, fit, you know, absolutely everyone left. And I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to go out on my own. And that's yeah. when I went into global account management because I thought, well, I'm just going to look after me. Yeah. I'm going to look after my clients because I know that what I'm going to put in, I'm going to get out. Mm -hmm. And then I became the top salesperson um, in the UK for many years running. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I Look, I mean, I, I oscillate back and forth between liking managing people yeah. and not liking managing people. I, I liken yeah. it to almost parenthood where in a lot of instances, you know, you you have to take care of the staff, which is your responsibility, yeah. and you've got to lead. Um, I, I think there's, you know, I look at there's sort of two aspects of people management. There's the leadership aspect, which is sort of vision setting and, and, and I guess, I guess providing that inspiration and mm. the other one is just the operational management of people like just yeah. dealing with people not showing up to work or yep. performance management and all that kind of stuff and it can be or not can be it is very mm. emotionally and physically draining it really is yeah and you can go home exhausted yeah people often say to me have you got children buying <laughs> 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 companies I'm like no yeah, I've got I've got, hun- I've got yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got a hundred of them or 30 or 12 or whatever it is it's like I don't know how you'd have the physical energy to go home and look after more minds and bodies and and keep yourself sane. Honestly, I look at all um, at the teams that I run and the individuals and how they're able to do all of those things because it's it's extraordinarily um, taxing mentally and physically to to be there for everyone and that's what you have to do because you have to be switched on, you have to lead, you have to set your own – your own mental state and be mm. positive even when you walk into that room and maybe something's happened in your life and that's not great but actually your role is to be their role model yeah it's so funny you how you can't yeah slip. your personal own personal issues can't bleed Mm-mm. through like like it's no. almost like like a stage performance at times where you got you go on stage like you have to perform yes. so you can be you can be I remember a role um where it was so taxing that I used to sit in my car for 5 minutes wow. before going into the office just, just to pump myself up to to go <laughs> okay whew. Here we go. Ready? Jamie's amazing. Jamie's amazing. Do you have like a mantra? (laughs) You are a lion. You are a lion. (laughs) So, so yeah, and I just, I actually had to sit there and like energize myself Mm. to then go and go bang because you have to be on and people key off of you in terms of their energy, in terms of of the, you know, the culture. You know, I, I think that if you're, you as a leader are, you know, low energy and you're like stressed out and, you know, then that's going to, that's going to be contagious. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and leadership is contagious, you know, and, and it's I, selfish, right? Yeah. You don't have the luxury of indulging your emotions no, um, because you're leading a business. And like yeah. you said, when you come in that room, they know whether you're up for it or whether you, you know, they just pick it up. Yeah. You know, it's like a spidey sense. They can smell fear. They absolutely, <laughs> no, they absolutely can. And so you, you just don't, you don't have those down days. That's not a luxury that leaders have no it's hard and i and i think um one of the things i learned i guess over the course of a lot of failure in my career has been that in order like there's this conversation and and i know that i know the intention this idea that leaders eat last you know this simon sinek thing Mm. um i wouldn't say leaders and i understand the intention behind that but i think it misconstrues i think a really important point which is i think leaders in order to lead need to take care of themselves yeah i agree with that because if you're not taking care of yourself in terms of physical care like going to the gym eating Mm. well sleeping um or mentally taking care of yourself then you're not capable of taking care of others i agree and and i see a lot of leaders who um burn themselves out and give everything Mm. and then have nothing left to give yeah 
Um, How do you take care of yourself? So how do you recharge yourself? And, you know, because you've had some enough amazing career and you've had some really great roles. So over the course of of a a career, I guess you've learned what works for you and what Mm. doesn't work for you. So how how important is self-care to you and sort of what do you do to sort of keep yourself balanced? Yeah. Um, I think that's such an amazing question and I'm sure so many people do this in really different ways. So I think it's Mm. always individual. I think the main thing is balance. Yeah. Um, so I always kind of think of um, individuals, myself included, around like thinking about that circle that your life is made up of work and family and friends and if you like spirituality and mm. whether that, you know, that could be mindfulness or whatever, whatever you're sure. believing in. Um, so, uh, you know, you've got health and wellness and fitness. And so actually we're made up of many different, almost like a pie chart, many different things. Mm. What's really damaging is when that pie chart is in balance, is mm. in balance. When your life is 95% work and you haven't seen your friends or your family or old work colleagues that you really love or, um, or you know, you've seen a movie you really want to do or you've just done something selfishly for you. Um, because I think when, you know, what happens to you when work goes mm. or the opposite? What if you are, you know, totally loved up and family and, you know, wife or children or or any of those things are 100% of your life and you don't, you know, you don't feed your mind. When anything like that goes wrong, whether there's a divorce, something happens with your children, you literally crumble and die. Mm. So I think probably the secret is balance. So for me, um, I guess finding everyone's different. What makes you happy? What gives you strength? Yeah. Where do you where do you find peace? And how do you find peace? Some people find peace in being out in a bar with friends. Sure. Some people find peace um, with yoga. Mm. So I've been a runner for many, many, many years. Um, so I love running. I've torn my hamstring now three times. So <laughs> I really I'm, love running. I, I do not love running, <laughs> as my body so, would do. But you know, what? I've missed it actually. From I would say from my mental health, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm not someone that can sit and do yoga because I just get bored and my brain races. Yeah. Um, so for me, I'm action orientated, but that was always, it was almost like a friend to me was mm. running. And so I would run in the morning, I think through problems, you know, I never ran with anything and, you know, listening to anything. I was just with nature and it was my time and I loved it. And I can't tell you how much I miss it. Mm. Um, but I've, um, because I run outdoors, I've, I've never really been to a gym for a very, very long time, but I've just joined um, quite recent last few months um, the gym. So I'm discovering things like bar, which is brutal, and um, Pilates, and I'm getting is running bar on. like ballet sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah, but just, I don't know. It was like if you put the Terminator together with uh, a ballet instructor, that's what you come up with. Right. It is. It's really it's brutal. Brutal. <laughs> I love My it. team will hear me going downstairs and I'm just going, ow, ow, because it ow, really ow, hurts. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think balance is is the right key. But what balance is for you, I think you have to work that out. Oh, com- completely. I think one of the rumors or the, the myths actually that need to be dispelled is, you know, I've had the fortune – enough to sort of work with both startups and entrepreneurs and also corporates is this idea that, um, you know, if you're not hustling and and if you're not working 24 hours a day, Mm. then you're not committed. And I see that, you know, coming from the venture community in the Mm. old days, I think it's got much better. Yeah. Um, This idea that, you know, if you're not, if you're not hustling, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk style, then, you know, you're not really committed. Um, And, and, 
you know, the way I've sort of rationalised it and, and sort of think about it now is if you think about athletes mm. um, or professional sports people, as, as, as I am, I mean, clearly, as this elite, yeah. my body. I'm imagining my, you in Lycra yeah, right I, I now. Know, I mean, my body is more of an amusement park than a temple. <laughs> How, however, I would suggest that um, even professional athletes have rest periods mm. and, and they run a, a cycle where they're not training always at match level. They're, no, they're have that level intensity and so this idea that you know i believe that performance is enhanced through rest mm. um you know this idea that that companies need to consciously ensure that that t- and i think leaders need to consciously that their team are rested and that they're getting that balance um because otherwise you might get these short term gains mm. but you end up with this long-term burnout problem yeah um, and i think that a lot of Partly one of the reasons why I think we're seeing a huge exodus of people from the corporate world is because they don't believe that companies have that that, that their interests at heart, right? Yeah. They just sort of feel that they're, you know, essentially a cog in the machine. I yeah. think companies are becoming more sophisticated and they're certainly getting more aware that, you know, making sure that their employees are balanced is is actually mm. a better productivity up. I think they I think they are getting better. I think um if anything I think the challenge on the startup side like it looks like when you're in a corporate the startup looks like it it's does. really it's, easy. The grass is greener. It is And not. then you're just like, "Oh my god, actually we've talked about you know, that's possibly one of the most challenging damaging things you can do for your family because yeah. you know, you're risking your house or your livelihood. Um, you have no idea where the next, you know, dollar's going to come from. You're trying to build a business. Um, you're failing all over the place. You're trying to raise money. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, come to the startup world for a rest. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. think that's <laughs> quite works either. So I, I think there are challenges on both sides. I think the learnings of, you know, how do you deal, how do you become resilient, how do you deal with these? They're, they're all different challenges. Like Completely. The stuff that's great at in in startup isn't great at corporate. They've, you know, they're black and white. They're very, very different. Um, but I think sometimes change is good for us all and yeah. it, it gives us much more empathy yeah. when you've been on different sides of that journey. But I, I think key to kind of what you've been talking about is also is, about giving us giving us the freedom, and I think there's an awful lot of guilt. Mm. You know, how guilty do you feel if you just sat on a bus and you didn't look at your phone and you just looked out the window? Yeah, I feel that all the time because I'm like, I should be, you know, it's an audio book. I should be doing my emails, and it's really hard to sit and be still, mm. and not have anything in your hand. Uh, I'm just trying to think of it happened quite recently. Why on earth I was sitting somewhere and I didn't have my mobile phone? And I, there was no magazine, or like I was just sitting somewhere going, oh, it's sometimes. I don't know the last time I actually did that. Like for five minutes, it felt like forever. There are so there's there's two. I think there are a couple of um, aspects of that. So one is definitely guilt. There's this um really interesting YouTube show. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's called Twenty Minutes, but it's they put somebody in a room with nothing else <gasps> and no phone for twenty minutes, oh and they God. just film them, and they have their phone, but they can't touch it. And and you just watch these people go insane. Oh my because god! Because I don't know if I could sit with out for twenty minutes. Did they just talk to my, it? Hey no, Siri! And, and, they, and they, you sit there and that you look you look at that they reach out and almost touch the phone and and they just have to sit there for twenty minutes in wow. a room with no no Tough. other stimulus, right? And they lose their 
freaking minds. Yeah. And and I think it's I think an interesting indictment of the sense that we are now so overly stimulated that we can't possibly yeah. do anything else. That's one aspect. Um, for me, it's interesting. Like, how guilty do you feel if you leave the office at five o'clock? Yeah. Like to go home, see the family. Even though most professionals I know work fourteen hour days, mm. um, but if you leave the office at five o'clock, even to go home, see your family, and then you work later in yeah. the evening or you work in the morning, you're sort of like thinking, are people looking at me? You have to I'm give leaving. a reason. Yeah, oh, right? look, I've, got a a kid, reason, I've got a yeah. school thing on or I've got a meeting. Something. You do have to give a reason. Rather than go, a baby puppy. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? I'm just tired and I like yeah. to go home and have a glass of wine and yeah. see my wife and kids in the daylight for a change. Like, you know. How um, are we, but do you know, you know how refreshing that is? I actually did that to my team the other day um, and um, – I mean, I could have stayed till six, seven, or eight, or whatever the times are, and I, you know, just looked outside. It'd been really cold for a while, and I was like, you know what, I'm gonna leave. Mm. Um, I'm gonna go because I love cooking, and I'm, you know, a food writer as well. So, you know, my a part of my re- relaxation is I love cooking. Mm. So I just thought, you know, what? I'm gonna go home at five. I'm gonna joyfully you know cook something fabulous yeah and then i'll jump back online but yeah. i'm gonna leave at five yeah it was like i was leaving at midday yeah but you feel like you need to but actually yourself. but i actually just said to the guys yeah, no, i'm, I'm just i'm gonna give myself home. an early mark i'm yeah. going home at five yeah, but i'm still wine, gonna jump cook some yeah. food it's great like, it's not like you know everybody's cooking now but it is it is really interesting that there is still a stigma associated mm. with that which is crazy so how'd you end up in australia so <laughs> So you know you you end up you 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 know doing these monster sales roles yeah and how do how, how do we find you on these fair shores? Um, I think because I didn't go to university and everyone in the UK that does go to university uh, generally has a gap, gap here. They and do. They all come here and they all they go do. to Bondi. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I know. I'm a cliche. Um, but I didn't. I worked all the way from about six years old all the way through till just before I was 30. And, um, you know, I just had the, I just had this incredible career and become a very senior executive in cable and wireless. And I wouldn't say I was burnt out, but I definitely worked really, really hard mm. and I love learning. And so I was finding more and more that I was um, not doing my Eurostar you know, weekend breaks, but I was, because I was in sales, you know, I was flying myself to South Africa and I'd work in South Africa for a week, you know, and still get everything done. What an awesome but I just, job. yeah, but it was because all they care about is numbers, right? Just yeah, do your as job. Long as like, sell, we don't care. We, we don't from. care. Yeah. Cause we were like, we were global teams so all over the place. Um, and I just thought this, this hunger and this thirst for learning and, Understanding the world I was living on, not through the eyes of the BBC and Richard Attenborough, was so kind of really got to a point of, I guess you know that fulfilment and the um, the rush that you get and the joy that you get from doing great things at work. There was kind of there was another thing that was pulling at me, and honest to God, I was sitting in a pub with um, another account manager at Cable and Wireless, who I didn't really know very well. I'd just moved into Southfields in London, which is where I was living. And she was saying that she was about to go traveling. And I, I said, oh, you know, I'd love, you know, something I've always wanted to do. And she's like, why don't you come? And I heard myself say these words. Yes, I'll do that or something like that. <laughs> and I had a personal coach at Cable and Wireless at the time because of the exec role I was playing. And uh, I remember sitting down with him literally on the Monday after I'd just told this woman who I hardly knew that I'd go travelling <laughs> And I was like, I can't believe I'm doing like all these things that rationalising like, I've got a good career and a responsible adult and I've just said this but I've just – and he literally said to me, what are you frightened of? 
Mm. What's the worst that could happen? I know. Oh, not having Moe. <laughs> and I just, you know, I just, I'm too old. I can't do, I need thousand count, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I can't do the hostel. I need to do a flash packing gig. So yeah, I, I think all of my friends then were like, you know, they had a vote about, about <laughs> yeah, we'll see Karen in six months. But I have to say that that coach and um, really, really helped me on my life journey around understanding what was important for me and calling out my fears and just really saying, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? You just go get on a flight, come home. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of said goodbye to everyone, packed up. I thought it was going to be six months. Um, we got to Argentina in the middle of the winter in Buenos Aires and um, there was a, a huge, um, you know, the, the, uh, there were huge amounts of um, disruption happening, the, having a political collapse, the government was raiding all the bank accounts of everyone. And so staying in a five-star hotel was like two pounds a night <laughs> and Murray was one pound a bottle and I thought, I can stay here. This is this look, good. This is looking pretty good. This is, this look, is a bit okay. of political unrest. I mean, we can deal with the coup. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, remember the champagne is cheap. Yeah. So that was my first real foray into travelling and six months of t- travelling ended up being um, two years. Wow. Yeah. So I, I did a, a year and then I – got a flight home and I said hello and goodbye to everyone and I filled in the blanks of the world and um, the most incredible journey of just life discovery and just, my God, resilience, you know, how you think on your feet, how you problem solve, things go wrong, you nearly die, you don't tell your parents about that. But, you know, it just it teaches you so many things. Um, but in the end I was desperate to wake up in the same bed. I was really missing... Um, the joys of building relationships again and the call of the waterfall or the next mountain wasn't as great. And so I wanted to live and work in another country. Um, And my Spanish whilst at that point was okay, was just not good enough to go back to Argentina. (laughs) You could order champagne and room service. (laughs) Cerveza, that's about it. Yeah, yeah. All you need. All you need. What do you need, Paul? Paul, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I thought I would live and work in Australia for a a year. So the girl I travelled with... um, uh, she, we actually kind of finished the journey um, on uh, New Year's Eve, and I remember her, you know, leaving for the airport on New Year's Eve in Sydney. I knew no one, and and actually spending the most depressing evening of my life with everyone hugging all their friends and me going, <laughs> "Oh, sparkler, happy New Year!" Just <laughs> I so hate sad. New Year's Eve. I don't so know sad why. and pathetic. It was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah so and so and, and so the rest is history. How long have you been in the country? Uh, 13 years, 14 years, I think. Wow. It was meant to be, what, a one, one, one year, year trip? Yeah, that's it. And so you've held some pretty big roles. You've obviously been the CEO a couple of times. Mm. How did you get your first CEO gig? Um, so I spent seven years at Yahoo doing lots of different things. Um, You're and part then of really, the Yahooza, aren't you? Yeah, and in the good times, right? We that, that was fun. And a lot of those people that I work with have all gone on to do amazing things with their careers. Yeah, so, there's a bunch of them. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, Alan Jones. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, they've all gone on to do great things. Um, so I kind of got to the point where I couldn't collect any more business units or do any more I kind of got to that point where I wasn't really learning anymore. And, you know, leadership had changed and it just wasn't 
it just wasn't as exciting. Mm. Um, and then I got headhunted um, by news for uh, Career One. Yeah. So, I, you know, that was my first CEO role. So I was absolutely crapping myself. Like I'd never yeah. even written a board paper before. Um, so, so many things I was completely unprepared for. And there was already an interim CEO. So I really just thought I, they were benchmarking, just put the wild child, you know, in there. Um, and never believed in a million years that they would ever pick me. Yeah. Um, and also the business was um, really dying. It was yeah. in, it was in, it was in it was, really. Because Seek was caning oh, career. And LinkedIn. And actually yeah. at that point Indeed hadn't really come into the market. Mm. So um, I knew that they were really suffering until I got in there. I didn't know how bad that was. Um but yeah, I, I was. Uh, I remember telling them that there because we had to present your business strategy and your presentation and stuff. And I remember, you know, part of that was, you know, your business is over, it's dead, and this is what <laughs> I do. And I remember, you know, my my partner Dave calling me and saying, "Oh, how did it go?" And I was like, "They're never going to hire me." I just told them the business was over. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> they love that board. Yeah, love they that. Love it, oh, they yeah, love it. Totally. And um, um, yeah, and then they picked up the phone and said, "You're hired." And I was like, "Crap." Oh, I had a similar experience when I went to real estate. The comedy and also yeah. another new, another news business, mm. but um, I guess that was I, a goodie though. It was, it was, wow. it wasn't. Wow. Too bad. It was not a bad one to pick. Yeah, it's a cracker. Um, but I spoke to Jane Bean Keeney on the podcast recently, and she was the CEO of Candle. And I was talking. I love talking mm. to first time people about their first time CEO roles yeah. because I think people have this perception of what it means to be it, and that yeah. you know you have this. Um, I guess. Uh, there's this stereotype of like, you go, well, everything will be okay. The CEO clearly has like, you know, unlimited power and it's all like you're just sitting in this massive office with a big wooden desk with the keys to the executive washroom, right? Um, that is not the Where case. Where were you? <laughs> yeah, news. Um, what, um, what was it like? Like like what was that experience like for you having – I mean, you've obviously had senior roles beforehand mm. and, and like I think, you know, clearly most people do before they mm. become the CEO. Um how did you – what did it feel like and how did you mm. deal with that? Because sometimes it can be overwhelming. Yeah. It was for me. Um, I think uh, fear was probably the, the best description. Mm. Um, so I think there was a a tiny corner of me of confidence. Like I, you know, I was kept on telling myself I can, I can do, do this, this, I can do this. <laughs> I've, you know, built businesses and turned them around. I've built partnerships. And, How hard can it be? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's just a really different league and there's also a sense of – enormous responsibility that you've got a hundred lives relying on you. Mm. Um, and, uh, I knew the business was not doing well. Um, and until I got in there, I didn't know how bad it was. And then when I got in there, I was like, oh, wow, this could mm-hmm. be the shortest CEO tenure ever. Yeah. <laughs> I, I okay, this could yeah. be like managing the like shutdown. Yeah, absolutely. No, seriously, because there was no more, you know, your rich uncles, which were monster <laughs> at the time, and um, news were not, right. so, were not so. Um, Putting their hands in their pockets. Uh-huh. Yeah, they were not so rich anymore. Oh, I forget about that. And the had really kind of run out of patience. So I think probably part of the reason they picked me was I was so different to everyone else. Yeah, they're like, we've tried everything was, else. Yeah, I, honestly, that was why they did it. And I've had quite mm. interesting conversations with the chairman, like what, what really then, you know, what mm. that happened. And he said, you were just so different. You had completely different ideas. And we, you know, had the same people that, you know, come from the industry and you just were very disruptive around. And we just not, didn't have anything to lose, but it was just like, 
let's just take that risk. But mm. I think they were down to that point where they were brave enough to make that decision. And I think often boards don't. Yeah. They're not brave. They don't look at someone that looks different. They don't look no, at No, they this. want they want something that looks They're like, oh, so here you go. Yeah. This is what this person needs to have. Yeah. And they don't actually look behind and actually who is this human being that's sitting in mm. front of you. Um, but because I didn't know the industry, I had many other skill sets that when I looked at this, this company, I just could see these incredible connections and what I could do. And so definitely the first feeling was fear. I think the other thing was knowing that ultimately we had to get the cost base under control and we were hemorrhaging so money, so much money. The other thing that I was also conscious of but in a weird weird way was looking forward to doing this well was I had seen um a lot of people let go at Yahoo and it was done so badly right I had seen how they had destroyed people those people had then become very depressed Mm. had lost all confidence in themselves and some of those exits were brutal they were Mm. inhumane and really poorly managed and I remember sitting kind of on the sidelines of some of those big redundancies and some of those smaller, more personal decisions, thinking if I was if I was ever in a, a position that I had to do that, I would do with that with grace and mm. humility and kindness and do that in a way with generosity that would set them up really well. Yeah. So don't get me wrong, it wasn't something I look forward to, but when I knew no. when I knew I had to do it, I was going to do it cleanly with honour and communication. I knew exactly how it felt. I've been made redundant, but I'd also seen this, you know, awful carnage in front of me that I really wanted to help build people on their exit, not destroy people on their exit. And so whilst it was, um, you know, an awful experience to go through, you know, with those names in those positions and those boxes mm. and completely restructure a company. I had to do that to save the lives. And these, you know, it's not yeah. just that person, it's their family, it's their son, it's their completely. daughter, it's their house, you know, it's yeah. it's their um, physical and their mental well-being mm. that you're responsible f- for. So, yes, I'm going to need to change this business, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to make difficult decisions, but I'm going to carry that out well. So that was kind of like that first, I guess those first kind of three or four months, which is how do we do this and and do this quickly and cleanly and kindly and with dignity and send people off with a really great, fun reception and a party. And it sounds really weird, but I want to celebrate that. You don't walk out the door for any business under a cloud of shame. Shame in with a box, you know. I'm, that's such a great point. I want to dwell on that for a second because um, I I am so passionate about this topic that I think the way you treat people on the way out is as, if not equally, more mm. important than the way you treat them on the way in. Yeah. Um, I was at Cisco and we had to let 5,000 people go. I had to get rid of – I had to make 25 to 30 people were done on a single day. Wow. Um, and That's heartbreaking. Yeah, and like it's literally – and you you have to sit there and read the script and yeah. the, people are crying. There's a whole yeah. lot of – you know, there's it's a, it's a very um, – Confronting. Confronting process. And actually, I did that very early on in my career. And the thing, the impact of for me was it changed my view to hiring, mm. actually. Um, and it made me far more cautious about overhiring. And, and actually, I think, you know, sometimes companies hire um, – sometimes recklessly going, well, it doesn't matter. We can just, if they don't work out, we can turn them over or mm. we can, you know, make those changes. But but I have seen so many companies handle exits mm. poorly and it is possible 
to terminate somebody, even for bad performance, yeah. and still make them feel that they've been treated with dignity and yeah. respect and not feel ashamed and, and all of those things. I think I think people don't talk about it enough. Yeah. And I think we can often reflect on our own lives and think, you know, in that company with that manager and in that environment, I was a rock star. Mm. And then – you know, in a different company with a different manager or leader in a different environment, you don't perform. Yeah. And so what we're often seeking is can I find that magic environment where I find the company, the business, the industry I'm excited about, um, a culture, and it really is, you know, I've spent seven years online dating, not myself online dating, but running online <laughs> dating for, for Yahoo and that kind of, you know, matching people in terms of the loves of their lives. But when I think about employment, employability, and I think of, you know, these you're not just matching two people here, you're matching many other areas, which is far more complex. And trying to get that right, geez, that's hard. Very really, hard. really hard. And when it doesn't work, it's damaging for everyone. So you really want to you really want to get it right. You do. You want to get it right. And also the conversations I have, I've over the course of my career, you know, let a lot of people go. Um, mm. And um, through structural change, but also through performance. And one of the things I sort of sense check myself is, you know, it, one is this a surprise to the person? Because mm. if it is, if it is, then you've done something wrong. Yeah, like clearly, great. you haven't had conversations. Yeah. Um, and then secondly, it's more about rather than personalizing it and saying that's about you, it's about your fit in this role at this time, Absolutely. right? And so that gives people. It's not a. It's not a weaseling out of the conversation, but it's absurd to say it doesn't mean that you're worthless. Mm. You just need to find the right role for you. In a, in a company that works for you and, and your experience. And I Great. think everybody can find that. Yeah. But I think some some leaders um, avoid those conversations and it harms the broader team. You need to, you know, trim the rose bush in order for the rose bush to grow, right? Nice um, analogy. Yeah, yeah, but um, it is. It's, <laughs> it's, it's tough. So what was the one thing you learned? What was the biggest thing you learned in your first role as a CEO? Um, I took some really big decisions. Um so uh, I've, I've always been an individual that has seen the good and the power in partnerships. And so um, one of the things I did as an early CEO in the first three or four months was I've got to turn around this business really, really quickly and I've got no money, I'm running out of time and I need to reposition this business. And also I fundamentally disagreed with this archaic view of the world of work, mm. uh, which was part-time and full-time. It's like it's not – that's not the way people earn money. So I picked up the phone and I talked to a, a young entrepreneur um, who was the first person in Australia to start um, the task economy. And I'd been following TaskRabbit and the collaborative consumption movement overseas. And I picked up the phone and talked to Tim Fung and said, hey, I'm a new CEO. Uh, I don't think I told him my business was dying because that would have not been a good move. <laughs> but I said, can I come in and see you? Because I've got, I've got an idea about how we could work with one another. And I remember Tim specifically saying to me, aren't you from news? And, uh, you know, <laughs> well, I'm a startup. I need to move really fast. Why would I, yeah. you know, why would I entertain that? And I just said, look, I'm really different. Just trust me. Can I come in and talk to you? And we got that deal done in three months. Wow. And effectively um, we brought Airtasker into the um, – 
the Career One uh, site, which um, really repositioned our business, changed the way that people came into our site in terms of the frequency and the intensity of engagement. And also I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, it was really Tim and um, Jono at that time. They were like three or four months into their journey, yeah. I think. And, um, you know, it's like come to our quarterly catch-ups if we're doing training, come to that, come to our drinks. And it's just, you know, extend the hat. Mm. You know, they they were doing amazing things. But we were, even though our business was, you know, in not a easy position, there were still great resources that we had that I wanted Tim to know that he could be part of this. It wasn't simply I'm just sticking your brand on here. So the big learnings of how you can partner and build something incredible by actually collaborating. Mm. And this kind of idea of corporates over here and startups over there and they need to kill each other and not work together, it's insanity. Mm. I think you have to build empathy. You just need to understand how you can bring um, – you know, the best of your assets and your business. And I think you have to be brave enough to say when it doesn't work. Mm. Um, but I know that having being part of Career One and having access to that, you know, million users a month for a startup yeah. is That's like it's fuel. helpful. Even if you can just go to your v- a new VC when you're pitching to yeah, them and go, go, have a look at have, this. Have a look at this. <laughs> I'm part of that, you know, in that News Corp thing, yeah. I'm part of that. So, um, so that was probably a, a really big learning, but it just – as a CEO, I was able to make that decision. Whereas I think in um, Yahoo, doing a lot of business development for them, you know, I I had seen the, uh, you know, the Groupons and the group buying wave hit the US and was, mm. you know, pitching to the CEO at the time, we need to do this and we did nothing. Mm. Actually, and, yeah, and we waited a year and then spent – Spent forty million dollars on spreets, and yeah. we could have got that for yeah. sorry, Dean, but we yeah. could have got that for. A lot. <laughs> we both know Dean. I'm sure <laughs> we could have got it, that for a lot for it, a lot less money if you had waited, probably yeah, as well. But yeah. good on, good on, Dean. Yeah. Um. So was that sort of that sort of exposure? You obviously worked in tech, and you'd mm. seen startups, and I guess your time at Yahoo and Career One, but sort of working alongside, sort of initiating that partnership with with Airtasker, yeah. was that what inspired you to sort of? double down and sort of get in, more involved in the startup world? Yeah, because I'd had a lot of exposure to startups at Yahoo because mm. a lot of um, young businesses were, were, you know, reaching out to Yahoo say, hey, you don't have a ticking app or you don't have these kind of technology around um, solutions for advertising. So I was often that first port of call that was almost like, you know, the pitch that was looking at these different businesses going, uh-huh, no, uh, yeah, interesting. And then trying to fight the corporate antibodies inside the organisation where people might have empires and go, mm, actually, if we use that, then they wouldn't need that half of my department. Or mm. um, So, you know, the, the politics of it being inside a large business or just not wanting to try not mm. wanted to test, not wanted to play. So we got quite frustrated really that there were opportunities. Like we had a movie site. You could go and, you know, read about movies. You could even watch trailers. Hmm, couldn't book a ticket. Yeah. Huh, that's yeah. weird. <laughs> okay. um, actually one of my really good friends, Christy, she was um, uh, she was running the commercial division um, over at Greater, I think there's Greater Union or Hoyts, I'm trying to remember she was now. And we were just going, this is crazy. We've got all these people on Yahoo Movies and you're trying to sell tickets. Like, can't we make it work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seems obvious. but Yeah, I know. Yeah. But we just, you know what, we couldn't, we couldn't, couldn't get, make it work. couldn't make it work. So that was, yeah, that I think this interest of incredible ideas, building businesses um, was definitely 
I'd learned as a CEO, I'd learned as an executive inside a large corporate, why that's so challenging. So you end up at Slingshot. Yeah. Um, and so I guess it's a, probably a good intersection of your career, right, which is you're sort of talking about the fact that um, – one of the frustrations I think that startups have is that idea of corporate venturing, which mm. is they sort of see the siren song of a corporate partner, mm. but I think corporate partners can either suffocate or or feed them to death. Yes. Like it can be one like yes. it can be one or two things, right? Yeah. Like you can you can you can smother them or suffocate them, you know, mm. or, or sort of starve them. And and yeah. so I think that corporate venturing has become sort of the flavor of the month, but a lot of companies don't know how to do that. I agree with you. Yeah. And, and and so you joined Slingshot as the CEO um, with a mission really to, I guess, accelerate corporates mm. and startups? So actually um, I, I joined them initially just to help them with a the scale-up program. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, – Like a side hustle. Yeah. Because uh, I was looking for my next CEO role. Yeah. And um, really fell in love with the business and the mission and, as you said, everything just clicked for me. And um, – and so I, there was no, there was no CEO role. I pitched them to be their CEO. Okay, which is always awkward, isn't it? You guys are great. But, you guys are you great. Know. However, you need a CEO. <laughs> I think I might be able to help you. Yeah. And they said yes, which was fantastic. Absolutely. And that's how I got. So I, I kind of pitched to get my own gig. And so, what do you think is the secret to success for startups wanting to access the corporate world? Like, what would yeah. what advice would you give? I mean, there's 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 you know hundreds of startups probably listening to this podcast, and mm. and so what? Let's hope so. Well, hopefully, I mean, hello yeah. children, hello hello startups, <laughs> um, uh, with my three listeners. Um, however, oh, it's more than that. It's, yeah, it, it is it more is. than that. Um, however, um, I guess what advice would you give um, to entrepreneurs out there wanting to I guess connect with corporates. Mm. Look, um, I think it's they are you know opposites attract. Mm. They they are completely different, but also your strengths and weaknesses are incredibly complementary. Um, I think there are significant dangers, but I also think there are great rewards. Um, I often describe it as kind of. I don't know, it's like you need a marriage counsellor in the middle, I think, for it to really, really work. So I think there is, you know, flavour of the month. We've really seen over the last couple of years corporates become much more interested in the startup world, but it's kind of a little bit superficial, mm. a little bit lipstick on a pig. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm going to go to these meetups or I'm going to do, um, you know, a bit of a pitch fest or. Yeah. It's like we're doing something in we're startups. We're doing something. And, and I think they're trying to find, which is great, they're doing something, which is Better good. than nothing. Yep. Because every step that you take, hopefully you're learning. Mm. Um, I think uh, the challenge is, though, that, um, you know, these aren't toys. No. The, the, this They're is, real businesses. This is real businesses. And when you take a month, three months, four months, that is like five years yeah. in the life of a uh, startup. So mm. your decision-making criteria is different, your language is different, your risk attitude, mm. the rewards. I mean, so many things mm. that are really different about one another. And you pull in opposite directions. So I, I think um, the kind of the advice for startups is is um a is there someone who can be that mediator yeah is there and i don't mean someone in the labs ideally yeah is there someone maybe is that someone in the business that's been a startup entrepreneur before who can be your bridge or your champion absolutely be the translator or whatever that thing is because um there is a power dynamic um which i think shifts a little bit 
but I think the the fact is you don't know them, they don't know you. And often startups are, you know, in awe of the opportunity to be able to scale through a corporate. And it's really difficult to have those hard conversations. Um, so I think the, you know, my message to corporates is, you know, really have empathy, try and understand and really put yourselves in the startup shoes. And I think for the startup, it is, um, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Mm. Um, I think there are great benefits to working with corporates. I think a lot of them is to see if you can try and get, find something really small, something really safe. Could that be a trial with I don't know, a restaurant or could that be a trial with five customers Mm. in one state? Um, Could you just find a salesperson to go out and work with, like something really minutely tiny Mm. that builds some confidence and builds some relationships? Um, because I often think some of the the better pathways are looking at, well, is the corporate, um, you know, pathway to your customer base? Is the corporate actually, could it be your customer? Um, I wouldn't recommend at the early stage the corporate investing into an early stage startup. And yep. again, certainly at Slingshot, we really advise the corporate never to do an, a you know a, a takeover of you know if you want mm. to put a bit of money in there put a little bit mm. help them grow and then see how they go and then put a, put little, a little bit, bit in. in yeah um i was having a really interesting conversation with a a, um, a very experienced scale-up business that's got corporate money and um just seeing how that corporate now is almost, you know, managing to the line item, the, you know, where he is spending his money in his business. And it's just like, oh, you missed your expansion by two shops. And it was like, seriously, it's two shops. Mm. And you just cannot smother a startup with that amount of governance. No. It's, it's insanity you're going to do so much damage to them and this is what i mean about empathy which is understanding these dynamics so um, it's really important you get that right ideas i mean look I, I um i remember being on a startup board um where one of the board members was from a large corporate mm. and their requirement was like 120 page board packs oh, and, 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 I, and, and, and and the startup was responding and, and the startup Not. was sort of spending two weeks preparing the board pack for every four yeah. week board meeting and and i sort of had to sort of intervene and say like, do you realize that that level of burden mm. on, like, it might work for you at yeah. your very large Good corporate you. that's, you know, 60,000 people. Um, but for, for that level, it's not appropriate for an organization of this size. And yeah. actually, you're, you're killing it. Yeah. Um, and you're not, and actually, what you're not, you're not getting any, you're actually not getting anything useful. You're not getting any additional governance. Mm. You're not getting any additional be- benefit. Like all you're doing is just sort of have this artificial view that you've got you've got some stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. I don't think you're playing your role. Your role as a yeah. board director is actually to say, how can I help? Completely. I mean, yes, I could I could I could do a show on boards mm. and startups because I mean I'm a member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and I've sat on public company boards, I've sat on startup boards and everything in between and and it's really interesting I think how misunderstood the role of a yeah. director is. And it hasn't changed. If you think about the board like the board meeting, how archaic is that, it's right? Really crazy. The structure, having board papers. Like yeah. how has no one disrupted that model? No. It's crazy. And I remember being a CEO and um really needing help mm. at one point in time in my career and turning to my board and just not getting it. And mm. and and it was because the board wasn't com- 
the composition of the board wasn't appropriate and the mechanism wasn't there. Whereas I'm like, what I want it for the board is to help me in areas where I, when I need to grow, I need to learn. Um, and, and that idea that, um, you know, the, the, the board has experience in areas that you haven't had rather than a board that's comprised of people who look good on paper, yeah. um, but actually are, are actually a negative um, drain sometimes on businesses. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's strange. So I guess over the course, you've had a really amazing career. Over the course of your career, you've had some ups and downs. Mm. Um, how do you put those things into perspective? <laughs> <laughs> oh, age probably. <laughs> age and time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think as you go, I mean, as you go through life, you know, it's like the first time you had a breakup, you thought you were going to die. Mm. You know, the first time you get made redundant, that's, you know, your confidence is crushed. Um, so and the I sun guess, comes up the yeah, next day. It, it does. Um, I think it also teaches you who are the good people in your life mm. and who you can, you know, who support you, rally around you. I think it's amazing how you end up bouncing back. I've had a few things where, um, like, you know, the when I exited Career One, it really crushed me. Mm. Um, and then you exit another business and, um, you know, you handle these things uh, I think in a in a better way because yeah. you've just learned you build a bit more resilience. Don't get me wrong, it you know it's, it's still, still yeah absolutely they're never easy they're never easy things. Um, but I think you do you learn and you grow and you build from that. But you know we wouldn't be human and I wouldn't want to be that person. It's just like oh whatever yeah. you know f you and I'm onto something. It's like you know what it hurts because I cared mm. and if if I didn't care and if it didn't hurt then I didn't deserve to be in that role. It's so, a really nice important. philosophy. Yeah. There are some people who just have I, – I, at times I used to envy that they just have zero, I guess, emotional mm. impact, I guess. I, I yeah. suppose it's probably not the right God, word. That would be kind of nice to have. It would, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be nice to have, like, no feelings at times, <laughs> I think? Um, but the way I rationalise in a similar way in a sense that I'm pretty passionate and I do wear my heart on my sleeve and I have mm. my ups and my downs. But um, the, the opposite of that is that it's based on the fact that I actually – give a shit yeah well i think it's about authenticity yeah Uh, and as much as we talked it brings us really nicely to that that bit where you kind of you were talking about you being in the car and bracing yourself and getting yourself ready to go in there um but i think there's a a certain amount of and again i think when you're a ceo you have choices Mm. you know i can Mm. i think you have to emotionally um uh you know uh present the right behaviors but I think um, one of the joys of being a CEO is actually you can be authentically you. Mm. Like, you don't need to be the person that conformed to a culture that you sat in. You can actually be vulnerable and you can be funny and you can be silly sometimes and all of those things. And that actually, um, you know, I've, I've worked for many different companies and, you know, different personalities and cultures from different backgrounds, different genders, different sexual orientations, all of those things. And if you are authentically you, that says it's okay for you to be authentically you. And that's absolutely all right. So you have to be that, you have to be that role model and play it. So if you want to go home at five o'clock, put your feet up, you know, see your family, that's okay because you Mm. know what? Your team deserve that too. And your team will be much more engaged, will really love the business because actually you're not really sectioning their life. You're just saying, you know what, I just come in and be your best you, work mm. the hours you need to be to be doing. Uh, I'm going to demand a really high performance out of you, but that's not always necessarily about 
being in these walls. No. But um, obviously I'm going to have very high standards for what we need to get done because everyone's got to come in at work and just do their absolute best because we mm. need to shoot the lights out. But I think people respond to that. Yeah, I think I think so. people respond to authentic leadership because mm. like, I think people have great bullshit detectors. Like as much as I think we like to think that, you know, there's this power distance and, you know, you mm. shouldn't familiarise yourself with the with the staff, um, you know, this idea that of actually just being you and going, do you know what, I've got flaws, I've got, I've got you know, yeah. strengths and weaknesses yeah. just as everybody else. I'm not perfect. Yeah. Um, but I think people respond better to that form mm. of leadership than this sort of very distant power-orientated, you know, sort of um, old-school leadership yeah. style where, you know, CEOs lock themselves in ivory towers with executive washrooms mm. and large desks. And it's amazing what you can uh, – I think it's amazing what you can do. I'm just trying to remember what the day – because it's like every day is like, oh, it's so-and-so day today or national so-and-so day. <laughs> and I can't remember it was a couple of, a couple of weeks ago. It was National Mental Health Day or something. Yeah, it was, yeah. I can't remember yep, what the – I have got the label right. Um, was it Beyond Blue? I can't remember now. And I wrote a note to the whole team and said, um, you know, life isn't always easy but every one of us can do something and that's just saying, are you okay? Mm. And so I said, look, if if any of you are not okay or you've got friends or family who are not okay, then let me know. Yeah. I know that um, <laughs> I think I said something like my door's already always open but I don't actually have a door. Have a door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Metaphorically. And I open. just had some really lovely responses and then conversations with my team that really mm. flowed from that. Mm. And so you, you have to talk about these things because people see you talking about that and mm. we've got um, certainly – uh, you know, family members that have struggled with those things and I've talked about that with my team as well. And so if you're open and you share those stories, then it creates a much safer environment for people to be who they are and it also means a much safer environment that if people are starting to feel like that, they're, they feel okay about saying, hey, Karen, I'm kind of really struggling with this. Mm. I'm like, okay, what's your happy? Do you need to go and get on a bike? Do you need to like go see a doctor? Yeah. Do you just need to just, I don't know, Sit on a grassy hill with a good book yeah. or go to a rave. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. Like, go absolutely. find your happy place. But opening those conversations, I think, is we have to take that duty of care, not as a word or not something that's in our contract, but actually is, you know, we're looking after lives. Totally. It's really important. Uh, look, I, I think that's an amazing place to, um, to finish off. I usually finish a podcast with some um, rapid fire questions. Are you ready? <laughs> Oh my god! You've got to come closer. Bring, come bring, back, bring come it back. on! Bring it on! Let's see. Tick 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 tock. Favorite book? Oh god! Do you know what? I, it's an oldie, but I I love um, losing my virginity. I think it's great. Like it's Richard yeah, Branson. I do. I like Lean Canvas and some of those. You know, good to great. Richard but, Branson, I think, is oh, I is is, is a, an interesting entrepreneur because he's so iconic, but also seems authentically him as well. Yeah, which I think is that, and just it? slightly bonkers. He is, but that aren't all entrepreneurs. Kind of good. Nuts, I think. Just Certain degree. Um, I, I don't know, Jamie. Yeah. You tell me. <laughs> oh, um, well, I think we're in a room talking about ourselves. Um, iPhone or Android? Oh, iPhone. Favorite app? What mm, app do you spend your most time on? Oh my god, on? LinkedIn. Ridiculous. Really? Yeah, <laughs> um, okay, you're a foodie, so yeah. I've got two questions for you. If you had to choose between bacon or cake. Oh, bacon, but I actually would go sourdough. It's my favourite thing in the whole world. <laughs> Pineapple on pizza? Yes or no? No, no, no ever, no, never. 
pineapple has a place on pizza. I'm, I'm telling you no. now. If, no, no, no. Uh, I need you, to take you to some pizza places. Oh, well, I'll like, take we'll, you up on. We'll I'll take. I'll take you up on this option. Um, uh, if you had to take a album or a CD or an iPod to a desert island, who's your favorite? Who's your favorite artist? Oh, crikey. Um, Jesus, it changes all the time. Like I love um, stuff like Head Candy and uh, oh, just kind of like um, Cafe Del Mar and stuff like that. Really like chill out, huge, sort of yeah. chill out stuff. Absolutely. I you need a bit see. of up and you need a bit of like. Oh, I'm like, I like out. a good bit yeah. of chill out. Um, if you could invite somebody to dinner, living or dead, who would it be? To a dinner party? Oh my god, I would love to interview the Queen because the Queen. how many prime ministers has she seen? Like, it's that's in, an interesting answer. I love when, it. Like, just. What she, like, Do you think she'd be a good people? dinner conversation? I just reckon. Give her some wine. Get Brandy, I don't know. Get, like liquor her up. Yeah, and, bring a few uh, corgis in. Get a consoy drink. Yeah. I reckon I'd love to see the Queen drunk, actually. That'd be, that'd be that'd be get a bit of think sherry of into stories, her. Stories. <laughs> stories, you know, of all the prime ministers through the ages, the ups and downs, and then all you know, the, the US presidents she's worked with. Oh, she's seen a fair bit, she actually. Amazing. She's been around. I think that's an it's an excellent, excellent suggestion. Yeah. Um is there anybody out there you want to thank or have some gratitude or publicly acknowledge? Yeah. Um, the marvellous Jane Huxley. Okay. Yeah, she's a bit of a rock star. Yeah, and she's on my personal board of directors. You got a personal board of directors? <laughs> I, 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 th- I could think of her as on my personal board of directors. I like it. I think everybody yeah. should have a personal board of yeah. directors. I think that's a great suggestion. If non, anybody, non-paid. But, non-paid, you know, maybe yeah. Maybe in champagne. The director's fees. Yeah, maybe in champagne. <laughs> the director's fees are, are wine. Um, where can people find out more about you? Are you a LinkedIn, Instagram? Yeah. They can find you on LinkedIn? Yep, LinkedIn. Um, I write for Daily Addict and uh, also for the Carousel. So if you want to follow what I'm eating or the great restaurants to go to or amazing places to go and stay. Actually, tomorrow I'm super excited to come about to go and stay in a place called Dovecote House, which Sounds is down in Jerigong and it's just stunning. Look it British. up. Oh, my God. I'm just – I can't wait. Oh, you've made me envious. I've got FOMO. I could talk to you for hours. Thank you so much for being on the oh, podcast. Pleasure. It's You're been an great. absolute legend. And um, we'll have to have you back. Anytime. Thank you. No pizza no. with pineapple. Pineapple is the champion. I'm having the last <laughs> word because it's my podcast. Get pineapple on your pizzas. Thanks very much. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed Karen's episode. She is one of the smartest, inspirational, and down-to-earth leaders I've had the pleasure of meeting. Today's episode was brought to you by The Founder Lab, who deliver courses and programs to help build better founders. You can find out more at thefounderlab.com.au. And if you'd like to find out more about me or the podcast, then check out jamiepride.com. Thanks for listening and subscribe to make sure you get all the latest episodes. Have a great week and don't forget to take care of yourself.